Okay, we have, unfortunately, a very limited amount of time. Um, let me just give a, a quick general introduction so you, you know what to expect. This is not a recounting of the entire Great Controversy. This is not uh, necessarily a promotion of the book Great Controversy, although I dearly love the book. Um, the, uh, the goal here is to show, in a, at least one approach, how the Great Controversy theme can be used to simplify the presentation of distinctive Adventist doctrines, specifically the judgment, the state of the dead, second coming, uh, and uh, millennium, things like that, and counter some of the prevailing erroneous doctrines, specifically the rapture, once saved, always saved, um, spiritualism, and, and things like that. Um, the goal is to do this from a biblical perspective. So this is something you could share to anyone who accepts scripture whether or not they have an appreciation for Ellen White, okay? The format is going to be like this. You're going to get a sandwich today. This is really drawn from a, a ten, 10 sermon presentation. First presentation here, we're going to try and give you what would be the first presentation to the public, okay? Second presentation, we're going to discuss how to cover the distinctive doctrines that take up less, or, you know, sermon two through nine in a normal series, and then the third session will be number 10 from the normal series. So first session and third session are going to be presented more or less as they would be presented to a non-Adventist audience. Does that make sense? Okay. You can ask questions and things like that, and there'll be a few exceptions along the way where I'll toss in some comments. But I want you to see how it can be put together in a way that's acceptable for non-Adventists. The second session will be quite, quite a bit different, just trying to skim through a bunch of material and show, okay, how to tie this doctrine, how to tie this one in, how to tie this one in. Does that make sense? Okay. So once you get the package together in the, the context of the Great Controversy, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very pretty thing. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's the, um, the approach here. Let's, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for every piece of inspired truth that has been uh, preserved for us at the cost of uh, many lives. We thank you especially for the great controversy and its themes and concepts that have been dear to the hearts of many Adventists for many years. We pray that today you would help us to find uh, efficiency and proficiency in presenting those themes to non-Adventist audiences. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I would also say, just before I go, that the third session ties together many things, to my mind, in a better way than any other. You know, all these distinctive Adventist doctrines that we look at and say, ah, oh, that's a little bit weird, people might not like that. By the time you get all the pieces together, it's just like putting a, a, a puzzle together and you've got to have that piece. There's a hole that are just waiting for it. And if you didn't have the judgment, if you didn't have the second coming as it's you know, biblically presented or biblically understood, you'd, you'd, you'd have an incomplete picture. Okay, so, uh, do you have a clear enough shot? You may want to you know, migrate to the east a little bit or something to <laughs> see the screen a little bit better. Okay, understanding the battle. This is a biblical overview of the big picture. Okay, we're going to jump right in and start with this verse from the beginning. You are of your father the devil, this is Jesus speaking, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. We are in a battle. This, in a battle situation, would be classed as military intelligence. It explains to us what the opposite side, what the opposing side is trying to do. We have a simple idea here. It's nothing too complicated. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, and he was a liar and the father of it. Okay? When is the beginning? This is actually important. This is a, an aside here for the Adventist audience. Okay? Establishing the beginning helps you out later on when you're dealing with forever and ever. Okay? As in people burning forever and ever. Establishing a, a, a concept of a Hebrew concept of time and dating terminology helps you further on down. So that's why we do this. Okay? When is the beginning? Um, let's look at a similar verse here. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Okay? The beginning. What does the Bible mean when it says the beginning? Okay? Well, they used, the Bible writers used their time statements a little bit differently. It was a different culture, so they express things a little bit differently. When they say from the beginning, it's always tied to what you're talking about. So this is not the beginning of February. It's not even the beginning of creation. It's the beginning, not even of Satan's existence. It's the beginning of sin. It's talking about sin. So he was a sinner, he was a murderer, he was a liar from the beginning. Okay? You see how that will help you when you get down to dealing with forever and ever? Okay, that's why we do that. Okay. Um, that's the point of this whole thing is all the way through, you're laying down things that will be useful to you later on. Okay? We're going to find out some more about the devil. The reason we're doing this is because we're in a battle. If you woke up one morning and you heard the mortars going off and machine guns, you need to find out what, what's going on. You need to find out who's shooting at you. You need to find out where they're shooting at you from. You run out the back door, maybe the, maybe the wrong door. You should, maybe you should have gone out the front door. You know? You've got to find out stuff. This is, this is, this is, we're in a battle. God here is telling us things about our enemy. We need to be wise. So we're going to go back. Probably the most complete description of our enemy is found in Ezekiel. So we will jump there, Ezekiel 28. <clears throat> Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Ezekiel 28. Notice that this verse is addressed to the king of Tyre. And Tyre was a port city of Phoenicia. It's kind of the northwest from, from Israel. It was known for its wickedness. But in these verses, the king of Tyre is used as a symbol as someone bigger. Okay? If you look at it so far, already the rhetoric is a bit much. I mean, Tyre was, it was an important city. But by our standards, this king of Tyre would be, you know, the mayor. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, it's not, not that big of a thing, man. You know, it's like 5,000 people or something, okay? Uh, so you can see this already, the seal of perfection. That's, a, that's quite a thing to say about the local mayor. Quick parenthetical. Why am I doing that? I'm setting up that, that, that prophecy often use these symbols 
uh, we'll have a sermon, we won't have it today, but we'll talk about it a little later on, called The Devil's Stand-In, where we're talking about the little horn. Okay? And you're establishing the fact that the Bible often uses a, a real entity of some sort or the other as a symbol for another one. Okay? So the king of Tyre here is not who we're really talking about. Look at the next verse. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your trimbles and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Created. Notice that last word. And notice this thing about you were in Eden. What? King of Tyre in Eden? I don't think so. Obviously, the king of Tyre here is a symbol. Okay? So, let's keep reading. <clears throat> you were the anointed cherub who covers... I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Who are we talking about here? This is not the king of Tyre. Okay? The anointed cherub who covers. Now, if you're Adventist, you've heard all this before, okay? So just bear in mind, this is, this is for the non-Adventist audience, okay? So that's going to be some stuff that, you know, isn't novel to you. Hopefully what we're aiming for is the presentation rather than the content, right? Okay. If this is new content, welcome to Adventist church. <laughs> okay? Okay, the cherub, or excuse me, the cherub, the anointed cherub who covers, okay? Where do we see that? We see that on the Ark of the Covenant, which had two large solid gold angels, one on either end, who covered the mercy seat, the resting place of the Shekinah, the visible glory of God, okay? They covered it with their wings. Why am I saying this? Sets us up for the sanctuary later on. We'll come back to all that in a moment, but right now we need to read one more verse. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. What we have here is a picture of Satan before he was Satan. Satan was a liar from the beginning. Here's the beginning. When iniquity was found in him. Okay? So what we have here is that one of the two angels closest to the throne of God, the most highly honored of the created beings, is now our enemy. That's a reason to be afraid. <laughs> We're not fighting amateurs. This isn't, this isn't the little league. This is the heavyweight championship of the universe type of thing, okay? <laughs> this is, you know, I don't, I don't know who the boxer guys are. If you knew that, you'd toss that in, right? Okay. Okay. Full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, the most highly honored of all the created beings is now the guy who's shooting at you. Okay? As I mentioned before, the idea of the covering cherubs is most clearly seen in God's directions for the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? This was just after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. They were in the, uh, in the wilderness, and God gave the directions. We want to look at that quickly here. This is coming from Exodus. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them. And I'm going to actually skip over this because hopefully you know all this. I don't want to read it all right now, okay? This is talking about the instruction to create the, the um, cherubim for the ark, okay? Let's go on. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony. Okay. A lot of sermons in those verses, but we're not going to cover them all. And a quick aside, for those who've joined us since the introduction, 
This is a demonstration of how to approach a non-Adventist audience with a great controversy from a biblical-only setting, along with parenthetical insertions for the Adventist audience who's listening today. Okay? Okay, I want you to notice the mercy seat. Okay? You should put the mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? It's just the lid of the ark. It was a solid gold slab. Okay? Right beneath the throne, this the, the lid of the ark was, was known as the throne of God. This is where the Shekinah hovered above the mercy seat, okay? Right beneath the throne was the foundation of God's government, the testimony. What is that? The testimony that God gave Moses. This was the Ten Commandments, God's law, the basis of his government. That's important. People don't think of that. Okay, this is an aside for the Adventist audience. We all talk about this all the time. Okay? But you're getting it out that the Ten Commandments are the basis of his government. Okay? What does all this have to do with heaven? Let's look at a few more verses. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Okay, you're familiar with these verses, right? With any luck at all. These are the verses we use all the time to establish the fact that the heavenly sanctuary was the original pattern for the earthly sanctuary. Therefore, we can look at the earthly sanctuary and learn something about the heavenly. That's, that's the way we normally approach it. Okay? Here's what um, we're doing with it now, though, here. God was very particular about the construction of the tabernacle. He had a pattern, and that's the way he wanted it built. I haven't quoted all the verses like these, but three is enough for now. But that raises a question. What was the pattern that Moses had been shown? Fortunately, the Bible has an answer for us. Okay? And again, you should be familiar with these verses, probably. Earthly priests serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. He said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Okay? The earthly priests serve as the copy and shadow of heavenly things. We're just simply establishing this heavenly sanctuary right now. Okay? The tabernacle... Let's see, one more verse here. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, or with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Okay, I'm not going to read the rest of that. We're just simply establishing the heavenly sanctuary. Okay? The tabernacle that the Israelites built, Israelites built was a copy of the holy places in heaven, where Jesus is now appearing in the presence of God for us as our high priest. And since the mercy seat... And the cherubim were made after the pattern of the things in the heavens. And since Lucifer had been one of the covering cherubs, then every time Satan looked at the ark on earth, he was looking at a statue of what he used to be. Just to make it a bit more interesting, don't you suppose that Lucifer knew the angel that took his job? Back to our main thought. Satan was a murderer, a liar, a sinner from the very beginning of sin because he was the first one in all the universe to sin. That's where sin began. Don't want to spend too much time on this, and I'll spend even less for this audience. Okay? But we're going to jump now to Isaiah 28. Or, excuse me, chapter 14. Isaiah 14. And you're familiar with these verses too. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? And we draw attention to the name Lucifer. It means the day star, the light bearer. Again, we're establishing this military intelligence. You have to understand your enemy if you have, want to have any chance in, in battle. Um, okay? That's what 
Lucifer was called before he sinned because his job was to bear or carry the light of God's wisdom and love to all the other citizens of heaven. Okay? He was sort of like God's chief of staff and press secretary, kind of rolled into one. You know, it would be like Rahm Emanuel and uh, Robert Gibbs, you know, kind of combined. Okay? Uh, Emanuel's out. I don't know who the new guy is. Anyhow. Okay. And in case you're wondering, the word Satan that we refer to him now means your adversary, your enemy, the one who's trying to kill you, okay? Notice what happened here. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. These are the words of the angel, the covering cherub, the one who was the most honored of all the created intelligence of heaven, okay? Somehow, We can't explain it. Somehow, this angel became envious of God. Why? I don't know. How? I don't know. But he did. How do I know he became envious? Well, you can look at it. The thoughts just sound envious, don't they? But there's a better reason than that. Go to John chapter 8. Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. You do the deeds of your father. You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. That only makes sense. Jesus told the Jews, you're going down the same track Lucifer did. Yeah. You've adopted Lucifer's principles of government. You're going to end up in the same place. And what was it that they were doing? That was not hard. Even Pilate knew what they were doing. For Pilate knew that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him because of envy. What was Lucifer's problem? He was envious. Okay. Now, why did I just do that? That's a dumb little point. You didn't really need to know that. You didn't have to have this thing from John 8 brought in here to, to establish that. I do that because I want people to get used to the idea of lots of connections of Scripture. Okay. One little verse here explains another verse over here. You, you've got to build on that concept. Okay. Okay. Back to Satan. There we go. Hmm. Okay, something is, um, okay, there we go. <clears throat> um, okay, we're looking uh, now at some verses from the book of John. Again, establishing who, you know, more information about Satan, okay? Jesus is talking. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out, he says. The ruler of this world is judged, he says. The ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. In each of these verses, Jesus is talking, each time he calls Satan the ruler of this world. How did he get that title? What's up with that? How did Satan get from heaven to earth in the first place, and who put him in charge down here? Let's go to Revelation 12. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Okay, this is the beginning. This is, this is how it developed in heaven. But now, I need to work with something that confuses a lot of people a lot of times. And stop right there for just a moment. I've had one evangelist tell me that he doesn't think it's wise to bring it in at this point. There may be too much negative reaction to this, okay? But I'm going to do it for you anyhow at this point. You can call your own shots on what you want to do with it later on, okay? Okay. The question here is, who is Michael? Who is Michael? 
Is it Jehovah's Witnesses that have a big thing about Michael that a lot of people have a negative reaction to? That's that's a potential concern. You might want to, you know, if you know your audience, you may want to skip that idea. Okay, okay. Well, who is Michael? Three Bible versions answer the question. Okay. Yet Michael the archangel, and contending with the devil, that's all we need to read. So from this verse, we know that Michael is the archangel. Okay. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. This is the description of the second coming. The Lord descends, the voice of the archangel, and the righteous dead arise. Go one more verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So the logic goes like this. Michael is the archangel. The voice of the archangel raises the dead. The voice of the Son of God raises the dead. This is geometry. You know, um, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? You remember that? Okay. Equals equal to equal or equal, right? Okay. Okay. So Jesus is the Son of God, is the archangel Michael. By the way, the name Michael means who is like God, and that's not a question. That's a statement. The one who is like God, which is exactly what Jesus told Philip. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay? That's because Jesus is the one who is like God. Okay, done with Michael. Back to our main thought now. How did Satan end up on earth? And why is he in charge? Okay? And war broke out in heaven. Michael, now we know it's Jesus, and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. You know this verse. I don't have to read this to you, right? Okay. <laughs> when Lucifer turned traitor, God kicked him out of heaven. But now he's a ruler of the earth? What's up with that? It's kind of like George Washington setting up Benedict Arnold as the governor of New Jersey or something. You know? I mean, that's, that's, that's weird. How did Lucifer end up the ruler of the world? Okay? Well, there are two clues to this right on the screen. Starting back in verse 3, John's talking about the great... Uh, uh, okay, yeah. The great dragon... I guess it's not in this verse. He's described as being fiery red, but that's okay. Okay, talking about the great red dragon. He's been talking about it. Okay, he's been talking about the great fiery red dragon. I'm sorry, it was back in verse 3, and then we're not there right now. We're in verse 7 and onward. Here in verse 9, he identifies this prophetic symbol for us. The dragon represents other, none other than the devil and Satan. Okay? But notice what else John says. He calls him the serpent of old who deceives the world. The serpent who deceives what does that remind you of? Hopefully, your audience will say the Garden of Eden. Nice job. Thank you. Okay? <laughs> if your audience doesn't say the Garden of Eden, yeah, you've got a tough audience. Okay? Uh, <laughs> what can I say? Okay. Um, it's a reference to the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember? Talking snake, tree of knowledge, good and evil. Tragically, Eve was deceived. She believed Satan's lie. We're laying groundwork right there. Satan's lie. And then Adam sinned too. And here is what happened. Jesus assured them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now it's a shame to see anyone a slave of sin. But it was an absolutely terrible thing to see Adam and Eve the slaves of sin. It was worse in their case. Why? Because God had given them something very special. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and all the other beasties and things. Okay? Adam and Eve had dominion over all the earth. And then they became the slaves of sin. So guess what happened to the dominion over all the earth? Okay? Satan claimed it. Of course. It spoils a battle. Satan claims all this authority, right? He had dominion over all the kings of the world. He used that line talking to Jesus, right? This is the temptation. Um, he says, I'm in charge. I have this authority. Where did he get it? Well, he got it dishonestly from Adam and Eve, okay? It certainly looked that way. It looked like Satan was in charge. It looked like he was the undisputed, rightful ruler of the world. But Jesus knew better. Why did Jesus know better? How did Jesus know better? Because Jesus knew the story of the book of Job. And that's where we're going next. Job is one of the least utilized books of Scripture. It's one of the most misunderstood books of scripture. Everybody talks about, when they talk about it all, Job's patience. Well, that's good. We should all be patient, and we can learn some lessons there too. But because people don't understand the background of the battle between Christ and Satan, they don't see the value of that book. It's a shame. This book is loaded. So we jump to the story of Job. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Okay, well, first of all, let's figure out what we're talking about here. Who are these sons of God? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. <laughs> okay. It doesn't say it exactly. It doesn't seem like they were sons of God the way we might think of we're all sons and daughters of God. If that sort of an extensive everybody, all his creation, if that's what he's talking about, then Job himself should have been up there. Job wasn't, okay? So who are the sons of God? I'm going to suggest, and I'll give you my reason in a minute, but I'm going to suggest that the sons of God in this verse are those who had been given dominion over different parts of the Lord's creation. As Adam and Eve had been given dominion over this earth, they should have been there. But now... Satan is, okay? You ever look at the stars at night? You ever look at those Hubble Space Telescope photos, you know? It's a big place out there. <laughs> How many sons of God are there? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Must be quite a meeting when they get together. That's a bunch of folks, I'm guessing. What do I know? I haven't been there. Okay, but let's go on with the story. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth in it. Satan seems to be saying, I own the earth. <laughs> it's mine. I can just walk around wherever I want because I own it. I have dominion. That's why I suspect that dominion is the identifying mark of these sons of God, okay? But watch what happens next. God doesn't just sit there and let Satan brag. He asks one simple question. But it's one that cuts right to the heart of the conflict. God says, 
Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Now this is important. Follow this. In response to Satan's claim of dominion, God points out that there is one man on earth who chooses to serve God rather than Satan. Well, so what? So what, we'd say. We're pretty much used to divided governments, <laughs> you know. Uh, so you got one guy in the country that doesn't like the government. Well, that's a surprise, you know. That wouldn't, that wouldn't bother us. But Satan didn't react that way. He immediately knew that having one person on earth who was loyal to God was a very, very bad thing for him. The problem is, from Satan's perspective, that Job didn't want to serve the devil. And Satan's claim in this whole conflict, and we're coming down to this, we're going to get down to what are the competing principles between the government of God and the government of Satan. Satan's claim was that the basic principles of his government were so superior to God's that everyone would naturally choose Satan's way. They would take his leadership. And there was one guy who wasn't. That was Job. This was a problem. You know, when you get into a big fight, you don't throw wimpy punches. Do you know what I'm saying? You know? When it's, when it's, when it's a, a real issue, you use your best ammunition. And God's best ammunition was one man. And Satan knew it. You can't overlook that. But we do. But you can't, okay? <laughs> Satan knew it, okay. What to do? Satan has to be discredited. And, hey, excuse me, Job has to be discredited from Satan's point of view. Job has to be discredited. And if you're Satan, it's all the better if you can take a pot shot at God too. Two for one, okay? Satan's rebuttal was really pretty obvious. He came back with about the only thing he could say. God you're bribing him. So Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. Satan says, Job doesn't care about you and your government. He's just doing all this because you're paying him. And again, you've got to catch the distinction between what we're used to in our society and what's going on in this, this situation here. We have, the government pays lots of people, <laughs> you know, more and more all the time, it seems, okay? The government is paying lots of people. Is that a big problem? For God it is. Satan's going to use his best punch. God has claimed that his government is based on the only principles that produce a stable government and happy citizens. And the idea of make sure you get paid for what you do isn't one of his principles. And Satan's saying, that's all Job's doing. Job's living on my principles, God. He looks like he's serving you. But he's working on my principles. So Satan issued a challenge. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. 
Satan is not being illogical here. You can say what you want about him, but he's smarter than the rest of us put together, <laughs> okay? He was the highest of the created angels. He said, you claim that Job has accepted the principles of your government. And I say, it's just because you've been paying him. So stop paying him. Take back what you gave him. We'll see how deep this loyalty really goes. Now, all of that, you know, you can follow that and it makes pretty good sense. But here comes the weirdest part of the whole thing. God said, okay. God took him up on that argument. Why? Why would God actually even listen to Satan in the first place? Now, this is important, and this is an aside for the Adventist audience, okay? This is an important thing to establish. If you don't establish this here, you're, you're weak down all the way through, okay? So get this out here. God is aiming for demonstration. That's what we're aiming for, okay? God actually listens to Satan. Why even listen to him? Satan had gotten kicked out of heaven once already. <laughs> you know, what's he even doing there now? Well, he's there because he has dominion, okay? Why does God even listen to him? Why does he just, you know, kick him out again? Or, you know, get rid of the guy. Better yet, why don't you just execute him? Get it over with, okay? God didn't do any of that. Remember where this challenge was made. It was in the middle of a heavenly council of all the sons of God, representatives, I suspect, from the entire universe. And Satan had presented a challenge to God, and he says, your government, God, ain't what you say it is. And everybody heard it. This is no time for God to depend on what we would classify as arbitrary justification. This is not the time for God to say, it is too. I said so. You can't do that. The simple rules of dealing with, with intelligent creatures, they want something more than I said so. And God honored that. This was no time for that kind of thing. Words were not going to be enough to refute Satan's accusations. What God needed was evidence. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God gives Satan the go-ahead. And the experiment is off and running. This is no small thing. Okay? Hopefully you remember the story. Right? Job's oxen, donkeys, sheep, camels, and children were all destroyed or taken from him in rapid succession. We can get a little idea of how big an issue this is by doing a few simple mathematical estimations. But we're not counting animals. We're talking about the human body count. Job had 500 yoke of oxen. I'm going to guess there was one plowman for every 10 yokes. That's 50 plowmen. They all died. He had 500 she-asses, one, my guess, one herdsman for every 50. That'd be 10, but there was one guy who came back and told Job about it, so that means nine people died. He had 7,000 sheep. I don't really know a lot about this. I'm going to guess, you know, sheep are kind of dumb, right? One shepherd for 1,000. I don't know, okay? That's only seven shepherds. One guy survived, six more deaths. 3,000 camels. I don't think camels get along as well as sheep. So I said, uh, a, a camel herder for every 100. I think that's really low. Okay, That'd be 30 herders. One survivor, 29 more people dead. He had seven sons, three daughters, 
Seems like we had to have some servants around, so I put in three. That gives us 13, but one of the servants survived. 12 more people, dead. Now, you can argue all you want on the estimation. I'm, I'm not going to stand here and, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to try and justify my numbers. But with my numbers, I get 106 people died so God could produce the evidence to refute Satan's argument. This is not little stuff. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? If God let Satan kill these people, just for kicks, or because he didn't think they were important anyhow, or for any other half-baked reason, I will renounce my claim to Christianity. And I would tell you, you should too. If God is like that, killing people, or letting Satan kill people, for no good reason, I won't serve him. But he's not like that. But you don't know that unless you understand the background of the controversy. There is a good reason. God did the right thing in this situation. In fact, the reason he allowed Satan to kill these people is exactly the same reason that Jesus himself was willing to come and die. It's so all the universe could see the working out of the principles of two systems of government, two political parties, if you wish. Satan's plan and God's plan. Well, Satan wasn't satisfied with this because Job stayed loyal, right? Led to a second round in the story. Job got the boils and his wife didn't help him on that one at all. But the result was the same. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. What does that demonstrate? It demonstrates faith. Now, Job's not the only one. Jesus went through the same experience. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But nevertheless, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Just as Job demonstrated to the watching universe that the principles of God's government were strong enough to keep a man loyal to God, Jesus showed that God was worthy of our love and faith because he loved us first and would take that same penalty himself. There is a question, or a point that I've made here that may need more evidence. It's not, you don't need more evidence. You're Adventists, okay. But for others, they would, okay. It's not a common thought, and some people might be inclined to question it. That is the idea that there are, in fact, other beings out there in the universe someplace who are affected by what happens here on Earth. Let's see what the Bible has to say. So we go to Ephesians. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Okay, similar verse here. For it pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness should dwell by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Both verses tell us that Jesus is working to bring things together. And some of those things are in heaven. Satan's rebellion is larger than this earth. Not that others have opted to go with him, but it has impact all the way out because he has challenged the principles of God's government. What happens on this earth affects what happens in heaven. 
we sometimes get the idea that the Bible is all about saving us. But you know, we're not actually the most important part. We're sort of small potatoes when it comes compared to saving the government of God. It's a pleasant byproduct. Actually, it's more important than that. We are not irrelevant. Notice this. We have an important role to play. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Somehow, the church, God's people on earth, is to demonstrate before... And this, demonstrate, demonstrate, demonstrate. You're going to use this all the way through till, till number 10, okay? Is to demonstrate before all the principalities and powers in the heavenly places some portion, at least, of God's manifold wisdom. But this raises an obvious question. What could we possibly demonstrate that Jesus didn't do already? What do we have that he didn't? It's only one thing. We are in a position to demonstrate what it's like for actual, participatory, guilty sinners to come back under the authority of the government of God. Jesus couldn't do that. He'd never sinned. That's important. You'll see that more as we go. That's why, well, we cannot come back under God's authority by ourselves. We're, we're lost. We're down the tubes. But to get us back is why God gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Why is this purifying important? This is very important. If you don't establish the idea of purification here and on, on through, you don't have a basis for obedience to the Sabbath later on. Okay? So... There's a purification process. God is not content to take people and leave them where they sit. Okay? Well, I'm going on back to the non-edifice presentation here. Put yourself in the place of the angel who took Lucifer's position. We call him Gabriel. Before sin, Lucifer was a good friend. I may even, might even argue that they might have been best friends. You know, angels are not little cardboard cutouts. They have hearts and minds. Do you think Gabriel wants to take any chances bringing sin back into heaven? That's how he lost his friend Lucifer. A mess like that certainly doesn't need to be repeated. So the angels are watching the church, waiting, waiting, waiting to see this manifestation of the manifold wisdom of God. God has said, I can save them and make them safe. And they're waiting because they haven't seen that yet. They want to be convinced that it's safe for Jesus to go ahead with his plan to bring together all things of earth and heaven. And when it finally happens, all heaven rejoices. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude at the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When that day finally comes, when the church is finally redeemed from every lawless deed 
and the righteous acts of the saints show that they are ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb, then Jesus will come and take them away. Why? Why can Jesus take some and not others? That's a very basic question. Step right through it if you need a gentleman. Why can he take some and not others? What is it that these people have done? And what about those who don't go to heaven? What have they done? Let's boil it down. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie, which Satan began because he was the liar from the beginning. The one group keeps God's commandments. The other group follows Satan, who was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. The one group accepts the principles of God's government and lives by them. The other accepts the principles of Satan's government and live by them. And what are those principles? Aside, right here, for the Adventist audience, at this point I'm going to pop up something here that... that that we work with all the way through the next nine sermons, okay? Um, you could argue it, you know, reword it a little bit. I'm pretty happy with it as it is at this point. Satan says, I know what I want. And if it's necessary, I'll kill you to get it. That's what I have to do. Because I don't trust anyone else to take care of me. That's the basic underlying principle of Satan's government. That's why he was a murderer from the beginning. He hadn't killed anyone when he got kicked out of heaven. Nobody died till Cain killed Abel. He was still a murderer from the beginning. Because the principle is, I know what I want, and I am more important than you. And I have to do that because there's nobody taking care of me. On the other hand, the principles of Jesus' government, I know what is best for you. And if it's necessary, I'll die to give you the chance to have it. I don't have to do that. But my father thinks it would be best and I trust his love and judgment. Jesus didn't have to die for me. In Gethsemane, he didn't even want to die for me. Not my will, Father, but thine be done. That's the difference between the government of Satan and the government of God. And that's what's going on behind the battle. That's what the story of the Bible is, and that's what we'll talk about in our next meeting. Come back for the next blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's, how we, <laughs> that's, that's the end of that presentation. Okay, That's number one of the series. We'll take a short break here. The next meeting, we'll be talking about how to weave in the doctrines of the sanctuary, the state of the dead, spiritualism, second coming, uh, judgment, refute the uh, millennium, uh, hellfire, uh, all those kind of things, and refute the rapture, uh, once saved, always saved, legalism, antinomianism, and, and all that sort of stuff. We're going to cover all of that next meeting. Come back in about eh, six minutes. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio 
and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.